Well, good morning. This morning we're actually going to be looking at chapters 35 and 36 together, side by side. And when I saw that we were actually doing 35 and 36 and that Maria was reading scripture, I had to chuckle because 36 is entirely uh, genealogy. She always does so well with that. Uh, but by the mercies of the Lord, we are just had public reading for 35 this morning. And we'll explain why we're looking at these two together as we get into the word this morning. But as we do that, uh, it's important for us to start, I think, before we even look into the text by acknowledging the reality that today is an important day in the history of Gospel Life Church. And it's an important day in the history of Northside Neighborhood Church. Today, Gospel Life Church has the, the, I think we could call it the hard blessing in some ways, of sending Northside Neighborhood out from among us. Those who've been uh, members and regular attenders, uh, church, plant, church planting apprentices, sent to plant this church in North Minneapolis. And whenever we do that, there are a few different things that I think is just healthy for us to address. First of all, there's sadness with this. And it's okay to be sad, you know. I'm sad this morning. I'm, I'm sad that we're saying goodbye to friends that we won't see regularly on Sunday morning uh, like we have had the opportunity to do for the last few years together as a new church plant. It's been such a joy, such a joy. I've been in small groups with a lot of the members of Northside Neighborhood who are leaving. I've had so many great memories. It's been fun to do church life together, you know, over these last few years, and great memories were made. So I want to say there's sadness. There's also joy, you know, as we're sending them out. And that's, that's for two reasons. I think any time we have an opportunity to send people out to plant a new church, it focuses the local church on two things that are really good for, for our good. First of all, it focuses us on mission. You know, it, it sets our eyes outward. It lets us know, you know, we, we don't exist for us. If we existed just for us, I would totally hang on to these people and we wouldn't send them, you know. Selfishly, there's no way that we'd send them if we existed just for the life of this, this little body, but we don't. You know, we exist for the, for the glory of Christ, right, and for that glory to be made known to the nations. And so we send, and so... Anytime you do this, it forces us in our sadness to say goodbye to those uh, whom we love and whom we've loved having as a part of our church. It forces us to, to see why that's the case, right? Oh, why are we doing this, though? Because of mission, right? Because worship needs to exist in other places where it hadn't prior. Because the Lord is doing recreation work, you know? So, so it sets our eyes on mission, but it also sets our eyes on the means of that mission. How does God do this? How does he accomplish it? That's what we see, I think, in Genesis 35 and 36. So we're going to look there, but before we do that, let me pray. God, we pray this morning for an extra measure of grace in the sadness of saying goodbye to friends, but also, Lord, your grace and mercy in showing us why we do that this morning. Show us the cross, Lord. Put the cross on full display. Let us see the reason for sending churches, for planting churches, the reason why we're about this work here, and let us see what it means for us to trust in you, in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Okay, well, as we've said before, ironically, the themes of Genesis repeat. Okay? And we often see, as we've said before, we often see these narratives that mirror one another. Some of the narr- narratives mirror one another in ways that are explicit and obvious. Some of them in more subtle ways, but always to demonstrate the author's desire to continually highlight the importance of this recurring theme that we see on these pages. And so throughout many different narratives in Genesis now, you've heard me use a single word repeatedly to kind of explain what's going on in the text. Counterintuitive. Right? We always talk about the counterintuitive nature of of Genesis. The author of Genesis wants his readers to feel the counterintuitive nature of the good news that he's delivering on these pages. And while that would have certainly been true in an ancient Near East reading of Genesis, it's true today. For the, actually, for the exact same, many of the exact same reasons that it was true then. And because what we're reading whenever we open the scriptures is counterintuitive to its core, the struggle in that tension is always actually trusting that what God has said and what God has done, and what God has decreed is greater than that which seems to make sense to us in our particular moment. Do we really believe that? It's interesting, you know, because I spent probably more time than I should putting thought to how I could introduce chapter 35, but even more than that, I I put a lot of time into finding modern contemporary examples of counterintuitiveness in culture. Just to define my terms here to show that I'm not just using a word to fit my purposes. So the Oxford English Dictionary defines counterintuitive this way. Contrary to intuition or contrary to common sense explanation, but often nevertheless true. Contrary to our intuition or contrary to our common sense explanation, but often nevertheless true. And you know, there are plenty of examples, if you Google this, Uh, of articles about nine ways or 12 ways that we experience the counterintuitive in everyday life, but they all kind of read like postmodern proverbs. You know, uh, if you want to truly find success, you have to stop looking for it. You know, like those kinds of things. And there were also some examples of what mathematicians describe as counterintuitive examples and probabilities that were, I think, interesting, but I'm not smart enough to relay them to you. And they weren't really counterintuitive as much as they were confusing. So it was kind of a struggle for me this week to find something of a meaningful or significant example that people in our culture would recognize as counterintuitive or against their common sense intuition, but nevertheless true, that also was really significant, that made a major difference in life. And yet, what we find in the scriptures challenges our sensibilities in deep and powerful ways here. Because what it tells us is that how we're wired to think about the right way to go about solving the primary problem of the human heart, and actually how we're wired to go about diagnosing that problem, is the opposite of what God has declared to us. And this, this struggle to believe that, you know, This struggle with the counterintuitive continues to follow us as we become believers. You know, like it doesn't just automatically go away and now all of a sudden we're believing everything that God says regardless of how counterintuitive it is. We continue to struggle as Christians 
evangelize. You know, so that those who don't believe in Jesus can put their trust in him and have life. As we plant churches out of a desire so those who believe in Jesus can find life in him. We, we share the love of Christ with the unchurch. Put Christ on display in that neighborhood. You know, like, we continue to struggle with the counterintuitive. In other words, we often seem to be put in a, into a situation as, even as Christians, for non-believers who are here this morning and believers who are here, if you're here and you don't believe in Jesus, or if you do, we're often put into situations in which the way we think makes the most sense to, to achieve our plans, or even the way that we think makes the most sense about how to achieve God's plans, uh, is different from what God says for us. Will we trust him? Or do we just kind of want to hold on to control because it seems to make more sense to us? And it's easier to trust in me than it is to kind of like relinquish that trust and fall completely into trusting the Lord oftentimes. That kind of, that kind of struggle in the Genesis narratives is demonstrated primarily in its characters. The first major place in which the author puts this tension on display is in the birth stories of Ishmael and Isaac. We called um, one, one of the sermons in that section of scripture a tale of two sons. One born out of a distrust in the counterintuitive nature of God's promise and one born out of the sheer grace of God being the only one who can actually accomplish his promises. And this is definitely the case, right? Because like the example that the author uses here is counterintuitive for all audiences. Sometimes we're hard on uh, biblical characters long ago in the ancient Near East during the time of Jesus. And we say, well, of course people believed in God back then because they had this framework that was, you know, it was all, all miraculous. Well, no, God tells Abraham that he will be a father of nations and that from him will come a royal promised seed who will bless all the nations of the earth. But his wife is not only barren, she's 90 years old. That was also hard for her to believe, you know. And it's hard for us to believe as readers. And so what's Sarah's response? Well, two cascading responses. First of all, she laughs at the prospect of God giving her a child. She has more than subtle cynicism about God's ability to make good on what he's promised, which leads her to then, it sets her on a trajectory that Abraham's even more complicit than her because of how passive he is, sets her on a trajectory in which she wants to take over and come up with a better plan, one that doesn't seem nearly as counterintuitive, one that seems to have a better grasp on reality. So she gives Abraham her maidservant Hagar. Ishmael's born, and Ishmael is the child of self-driven, self-reliance, a self-salvation project, a belief that we knew better than God, that God has the right idea, that he's on the right track, that he has good intentions, but he just needs a little bit of help from us because he obviously doesn't understand the real world or how it functions. Man, we can get caught into that trap today. And as we've seen in recent weeks, there's been a, a counterintuitive tension between Jacob and Esau. The older, stronger, first-in-line, status brother will serve the younger, weaker brother who has no status or claim and inheritance in the ancient Near East. And as we read together the opening pages of Jacob and Esau weeks ago... We didn't get the sense, as we said, that the smart money is on Jacob here. Esau's a man of the field, a gifted tracker and hunter, a big, hairy guy, a man who's captured his father's eye and heart, and a man who you 
you assume, isn't going to have any problems capturing the hearts of men under his leadership as a strong leader of his family and nations moving forward. Jacob, in all these categories, is described in opposite terms, and yet the Lord chooses him to be the one who continues the line of promise. And just like Jacob and Esau's narrative, generally speaking, mirrors the narratives and themes of Isaac and Ishmael, at the very end of these narratives, as they both wrap up, in both accounts, we see one last comparison between the two. In chapter 25, we saw this in pretty much exactly the same way. Isaac, the death of Abraham, followed by the departure of Ishmael, if you remember, and now we see something similar here. It's almost, it's almost as though the author in both cases wants to make sure we understand who is going to be in the line of promise and who's not going to be in the line of promise, just in case we're still reading this and we're like, are we sure? Are we sure that it's not going to be Esau? And we'll get into that a little bit more this morning. And so just like Isaac and Ishmael part ways as Abraham dies in chapter 25 after burying him together, we get one last look there at the child of self-driven, self-reliance, Ishmael, moving eastward while the child of promise, Isaac, waits as a sojourner in the land of promise. And those Abrahamic narratives come to a close. Now we see Jacob and Esau narratives coming to a close. As Isaac dies in chapter 36, and we see the child of earthly strength and status being compared one last time with the child of sovereign grace and mercy. And that's really our outline this morning. Again, as we saw weeks ago, a tale of two sons. A child of sovereign grace and mercy, a child of earthly strength and status. And each one, uh, as, as we look at each one more closely, that we're going to see different implications of the same gospel. So let's look first at the child of God's sovereign grace because the chapter in 35 starts out setting our focus and attention on Jacob, right? So picking up where Patrick left off last week, I'm so grateful for him setting the stage so well for us uh, last week into our text this morning and challenging us so well. Now God brings Jacob back to Bethel. Back to this place in which God showed him the counterintuitive nature of the promise. So last week it was sort of setting us up for the journey, and now the journey happens. Now they're going. That un- this place where unlike Bethel, where men were, or sorry, unlike Babel, where men were building a staircase to reach up to God on the basis of human effort, God gives Jacob at Bethel this vision of a staircase in which the only means of communion with a holy God is God coming down, right? It's not Jacob ascending the giant staircase. He doesn't say, Jacob, work your way up to me. But rather God coming down in his grace and mercy, descending the staircase to be with his people. Jacob saying, God is, is here and I didn't even know, right? God reaching down to us rather than us striving upward toward him because anyone reading through Genesis, even casually, is going to realize the problem with us reaching up to God. I realize why Jacob can't do that especially. You know, They're going to know that Jacob's efforts aren't just not good enough to reach a holy God, but they're repeatedly filled with his failures that we've seen week after week. And yet Bethel is the place where God says to Jacob, 
just like he did with Abraham, despite your repeated failures, my promise holds true. It actually brings us back to verse 3 from the text last week, which gave us the purpose of the journey that we read this morning. Okay, So verse 3, Then let us arise and go up to Bethel, so that I may make there an altar to God who answers me in the, daily, in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. Listen to that. Been with me wherever I've gone. He's always answered me in my distress. Jacob's description of God is this perfectly fitting summary of this ongoing theme that we just described throughout Jacob's life. Jacob is in constant, constant distress. Why is he in constant distress? Because he created that distress. And yet despite being the one who created his own distress, God has been faithful to deliver him in the midst of his failures. There's a sense once again in chapter 35 of a realiza- Jacob's realization of his own inadequacies that we talked about weeks ago to the point where he realizes that the only option is to throw himself upon the mercies of God. And so by God's protection in verse 5, if you look at, set your eyes on verse 5, if you see by God's protection there, which is once again protection despite the fact that the reason that the nations were in pers- surrounding nations were in pursuit of Jacob's sons was because of the murder that they had just committed, Right? So another example of how they bring this distress upon themselves, and yet God faithfully protects them because the promise doesn't and indeed can't because of the sin rest on their shoulders, and it only rests on God's shoulders. By that protection, they arrive at Bethel, and it marks the end of this journey. Final demonstration, at least in Jacob's life, this final demonstration between these two, that God has been faithful to Jacob. It's, it's quite the moment. Jacob realized in Bethel, in chapter 28, God's with him and he didn't even know it. And now Jacob reflects on the reality. Actually, God has been with me throughout. And so Jacob build, builds an altar to the Lord. The Lord again appears to him. Read with me, starting in verse 9. God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Padan Aram and blessed him. God said to him, your name is Jacob. No longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So we call them Israel. We talked about this a few weeks ago, but here we see a reminder for the basis uh, that Jacob was chosen out of, you know? Sovereign grace. He's a child of sovereign grace. We see once again a reminder that what Jacob needed wasn't just a set of different circumstances, because the problem is his heart. What he needs is a new identity entirely, as God once again restates this renaming from Jacob to Israel, from Jacob, a title that's about him as planner and deceiver. A name that's Jacob, the planner and deceiver, to now Israel, which means God is the one who provides and moves and works and is faithful. Jacob tries and fails. He plans and schemes. God provides and is faithful to his promises. Not through his own cunning or deceit, not through self-driven effort, but rather because of God's counterintuitive, his counterintuitive choice before he had done anything good or bad of the weak, deceitful, and struggling Jacob. And what he had been chosen for was to be the one through whom the line of promise now is extended. Verses 11 and 12. Man, this really centers in on the promise made to Jacob, and it should fill your heart with hope. And God said to him, look at verse 11. God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. 
A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. The land I gave to Abraham and Isaac I give to you, and I will give to the land to your offspring after you. It's hard to overstate the significance of the promise here. God tells Jacob first, be fruitful and multiply. What does that, of course, remind us of? Reminds us of God's instructions to mankind at creation. Genesis 1. Demonstrating that he's still at work. Working according to his promises in Jacob's life now to become a blessing to all nations of the earth through Jacob's line. But it also shows us how this will happen in a way that reminds us of God's words to Sarah in chapter 17, if you remember. Because now God says to Jacob, kings shall come from your own body. How's this going to happen? Kings will come from your own body. And we know that this line of promise does extend to kings. We see King David coming from this line of promise. But we also see that the seed that was promised right away in Genesis chapter 3, right after the fall, moments after the fall, the seed that would come to make God's blessings know far as the curse would be found would be the king of kings. The promise that we continue to learn more about as the story unfolds continues to be made to the readers that there's one who's coming who will bring redemption to everything. And as this chapter demonstrates, this promise is made not on the basis of Jacob's earthly standing. He had none in any kind of way any kind of meaningful way, but on the basis of a standing that, he, that God had given counterintuitively to Jacob. And in the rest of this section about Jacob, we see why that's so significant, because sadly in the next text, Rachel dies giving birth to Benjamin. The consequences of the fall are still very apparent in this chapter, you know. Difficulty in death and childbearing is certainly a direct consequence of sin, Direct consequence of the fall of Genesis 3. One that will be referenced in the judgment itself. So, in other words, here in these few verses, we're reminded of Genesis 1, when God tells Jacob to be fruitful and multiply. And then we're reminded of Genesis 3, when as they attempt to do that, Rachel dies in giving birth. But because of the promise, we see hope in the text. Rachel dies, goes into labor, dies, and is buried in this place known as Ephrath. It's important to the author that the site of the burial is actually, the birth and the burial is actually identified as the city of Bethlehem. Look with me at verse 19. So Rachel died and she was buried on the way to Ephrath. That is Bethlehem. So why is this something that's important enough to the author to identify to us? That this place is actually Bethlehem. Well, so the city of Bethlehem, it's going to be an important place in later uh, biblical history, right? And actually, we see references to it throughout the Old Testament, and we see references to Rachel's tomb throughout the Old Testament in Israel's history. But the primary way that Bethlehem becomes an important place is that, like Bethel, this would be a place where God would descend to his people to be with them. How in the midst of suffering and sin and death that we find here in chapter 35 can people find hope as they wait for the promise to be fulfilled? Because in this place will come the birth of a son who will save his people from sin and death that plagues them. Listen to the prophet Micah as he alludes to Genesis 35. He says, but you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, 
From you shall come forth from me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. Therefore, he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure, for he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. Here you have this birth narrative that leads to death in Genesis 35 in Bethlehem. And it points forward strikingly to another birth narrative in Bethlehem that will lead to life because of the reason that the child would come. You shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. This promise, see Jesus, the king of kings, will be born in Bethlehem, a place of death from birth, in order to give us life in his death and resurrection. Rachel calls the child Benoni, which means son of my trouble. Jacob calls him Benjamin, which means son of my good fortune. So Bethlehem is the place where the true and better son of our good fortune was born in order to save us from what truly troubles us, which is sin and separation from a holy God. But here's the counterintuitive piece to this. Everything about that that I just said, everything in this chapter leading up to this, in chapter 35, informs us that the means of that salvation is sheer grace. This is unachievable, you guys. Even a cursory reading of 35. Unachievable. You can't achieve salvation. You can't do it. And we struggle with that. You know, we do. We struggle. We, we don't want to believe that we can't do it. We don't want to believe that the central problem of our heart is sin and separation. We don't want to believe that we're rebels against a good and holy God. We struggle with that the way that Sarah and Abraham struggled with not being able to achieve the promise given to them. The very next verse after Rachel's death, though, shows us this is true. The very next verse after she's buried shows us the massive failures of Jacob's sons and once again perpetuating the cycle of sin after sin after sin. And so the reader is left at the end of this section in which Isaac, the child of promise, dies. And then Rachel dies. And then Jacob's sons fall in again to this massive sin. We're left with the understanding that any hope we have, any hope we have, must come not from the ingenuity of broken and sinful humanity, but from God's sovereign grace and mercy. Jacob is the son of sovereign grace and mercy. Despite human failure and sin, God has his way. He will have his way. And the way of God is the way of grace toward those who rebelled against him by faith. The way of mercies, deep, far reaching mercies to those who are far from him because they've run the other direction by faith. And so we see this child of sovereign grace and mercy in chapter 35 now finally contrasted with the child of earthly strength and status in chapter 36. Because we shift our attention from Jacob and his line. One last reminder of God's work in the midst of his sin to now Esau. And after Esau and Jacob bury their father together in part ways, similar to how Ishmael and Isaac parted ways after burying Abraham, they now 
there's, there's a departure, and, and almost as if to make sure that the reader's reminded that Esau, who, if you remember, by the end of the last narrative that Esau was in, we said he, he actually looks like the better man of the two, you know? And Esau comes in, and Jacob's kind of trying to weasel his way out, and, and he tells him, come on with me to Seir, we'll celebrate, and Jacob says, oh, yeah, yeah, I'll be there in 15 minutes, and then just goes the other direction. He actually ended up looking like a better man of the two, the better brother, the one who already had all the earthly strength and status from the beginning of the story. He is indeed the one through whom the line of promise extends. Right? He's not the one through whom the line of promise extends. Jacob is. Esau moves eastward while his brother waits in the land of promise. This is what I mean when I say that chapters 35 and 36 together, they're intended as a unit. A genealogy in one that's shorter, a genealogy in one that's longer. They're intended as a unit to contrast this tale of two sons one last time. This contrasting of two sons has been happening throughout Genesis. Adam has two sons, Cain and Abel, and the younger one was chosen to receive blessing by grace, while the older one received a curse because of his own sin. Abraham had two sons, Ishmael and Isaac. Only the younger one, who came about counterintuitively, was the son of through whom the promise would come. Isaac had two sons, Jacob and Esau, and only the younger one, counterintuitively, was the one through whom the promise would come. And as we'll see, Jacob will have two sons in the text moving forward. The house of Joseph and the house of Judah, and only one will be the son through whom the promise will be extended. But here in chapters 35 and 36, we see the author wrapping up this tension between Jacob and Esau, and the reader is reminded of the counterintuitive mercies of God. It doesn't come about in the way you think. That's what the author's saying. God's promises, they don't come about in the way that you might stop and pause and reflect and think. You can't actually save yourself. You can't reverse engineer God's promises. You can't apply your wisdom and human cunning, human wisdom and human cunning, cunning to the promise uh, of God, to achieving the promise of God. Instead, you empty your hands. You empty your hands of whatever your plans are, and you trust entirely on the promises of God. It's like what Calvin said when he says, you, know, you, don't, you empty your hands, and if you empty your hands and you come before God, you get everything. If you come to God with something, you get nothing. If you come to God saying, look at this, you get nothing. If you empty your hands and come to God with nothing, you get everything in Christ. Everything. And yet, weirdly, here you have one of the longest genealogies in the entire book of Genesis in chapter 36. Set your eyes there. Look at all these names. One of the longest genealogies in the entire book of Genesis to be devoted to the descendants of one individual. And that genealogy is given to Esau. His genealogy is longer than Jacob's in 35, uh, way longer. Given to Esau. Why? Because here we get to see just how far-reaching this counterintuitive mercy, grace and mercies of God actually extend to the nations. There isn't anything overly significant about the names themselves. We could do a deep dive into each name and come into some disagreement with, within the different commentaries on what the names mean or who they might reference, and we surely find some interesting things, but that's not the primary purpose that, that the author's writing this account. The purpose is the author going to great lengths to demonstrate, demonstrate just how mighty of a household Esau will come to possess. Edom is a mighty nation, and the promise that's given to Jacob even in this previous chapter, is a reminder that through his seed, all of the nations of the earth, including Edom, will be blessed. This king who is to come will be a blessing to every nation of the earth. 
Salheimer's helpful once again in reminding us of this. He says, the name Esau is identified by the comment that is Edom throughout this chapter, chapter 36. Why this concern? The solution lies, again, in the future importance of Edom during the later periods of Israel's history. As the book of Obadiah demonstrates, Edom is a microcosm for Israel's relationship to all nations. In the future reign of the messianic king, Edom will once again, as in the days of David, be a part of his kingdom. So also within the Pentateuch, the possession of Edom is a mark of strength and victorious reign of the star that will come out of Jacob. It is no wonder that the New Testament writers look to these passages and see in Edom a promise that relates to all humanity. The words are similar in Hebrew. In Acts chapter 15, James identifies Amos' words, the remnant of Edom, with the remnant of all humanity in the church. In other words, Jesus is hope to the nations, gathering together from every tribe and tongue and nations of people for his possession. This counterintuitive nature of God's grace that it's found not through my own efforts, nor through some other thing or status that I possess, but only sheer grace and what God has done for me at the cross that I could never do for myself is not only what saves us, but it's the means through which others can be saved, the nations can be saved, the means through which a people from every tribe, tongue, and nation can be saved, and the means that we can trust will save all who hear it. Today we're commissioning Northside Neighborhood Church I just want to say I'm so thankful for all of you who are a part of this church, part of Northside Neighborhood. So thankful for your desire to plant a church, for your commitment to the Lord, your obedience to him, your, your calling to do this, to plant the gospel in North Minneapolis, to, to come alongside of Gospel Life Church and proclaiming the gospel to the nations. This is a counterintuitive calling. My encouragement and exhortation to all of you this morning. And this includes gospel life, right? So it's an encouragement to us as a church. Like I said, when you send a church plant, your eyes become outward. Missionality is, is front and center. Encouragement to all of us. But my encouragement to you is to trust that God really can do what he calls you to. He really can. God really can do what he calls you to. And you really can't without him. Northside Neighborhood Church desires, I know, to see people move from spiritual death to spiritual life. I've loved having conversations about evangelism with Patrick and with, actually, recently, the whole team and their passion to see people come to Christ. We all need to know what we've said before. It's a good reminder, and I think, in the end, an encouraging reminder that you can no more move someone from spiritual death to spiritual life through your own creativity and ingenuity then you can move someone from physical death to physical life by those means. You can't do it. It's a spiritual act. But God can, and he will as the gospel is proclaimed, and you can trust him. This is an exhortation for all of us, right? Even as we have Gospel Life Church membership meetings happening right now, reminding one another that these exciting opportunities for ministry opening back up again in 2021, let's remember, as that happens, to avoid... The attitude that sin creates, that Sarah demonstrated, that we talked about earlier, that Abraham was passively complicit in, of hearing God's promise and the means of God's promise, the means of ministry, the means of mission, and having this cascading reaction of some form of laughter, even subtle cynicism, 
cynicism at the prospect that God could actually work in that way, and then placing ourselves on a trajectory toward taking over and coming up with a better plan that makes more sense to us. Man, what a temptation that is in the life of the local church. Preaching the scriptures, expositional preaching, preaching the Bible, really? Does God really save people, or does God really make disciples through preaching the scriptures? It seems so naive. People don't like to be preached at, you know. Preaching has become pejorative in culture. You don't learn things. You don't learn how to fix a car by someone standing at a platform and reading a, reading a manual to you. Expositional preaching, let's come up with a better plan, a more catchy plan, a new plan. What we really need to do is you know, fill in the... Fill in our own intuition right there. Evangelism, really sharing the gospel with our friends, neighbors, co-workers, others who are placed in our path who don't know Jesus Christ. It seems so pushy and old-fashioned, not to mention, doesn't it take more creativity than that? Let's come up with a better plan. What we need to do instead is fill in our own intuition in that spot, right? Repeating the gospel to ourselves and to one another really Isn't this idea of gospel repetition just telling ourselves what we already know? Shouldn't we be moving on to new ideas, deeper ideas, rather than continuing to come back to the same ancient and maybe even antiquated thing over and over again, week after week? Let's come up with a better plan. What we should do instead is applying the gospel to every part of our sanctification, really like If we really want to make disciples, don't we need a giant checklist of spiritual fruit to acquire through our efforts that moves us up this chart or diagram in some kind of way that shows how successful I am at this? Rooting every aspect of my life in the gospel for our joy in the city's good. Isn't this just an ivory tower idea? Let's come up with a better plan. What we should do instead is, like, there's a variety of ways. Be here all day doing this. A variety of ways in which the mission that you're called to and the means that God gives you is going to feel counterintuitive. Trust the Lord. Preach the word. Proclaim the gospel to non-believers. Repeat it to yourselves and to one another's all of the time in the life of your church. Apply it to all of your life. The means by which God does these things seem to be given almost in a way as though to ensure us that we can never think it came from us or our ideas. Right? It's almost like to make sure we understand that it's never going to be because of us because it seems so counterintuitive. Rather than us doing something where it's like, it's so easy, so easy, you know, we experience this some kind of growth and it's like, well, that's because we did X. It's because of us something that we did. Now the means that God gives us ensures that any fruit that comes about through the ministries of Northside Neighborhood Church and Gospel Life Church is his work. It doesn't come about primarily through us and that should encourage us, you know. So with that in mind, let's just know we're totally reliant on him and as an expression of that reliance in sending Northside Neighborhood Church, we need to pray for them. This is his work, right? So we need to pray for them. So what I would like for everyone who's a part of this, who's leaving us to go with, with Northside Neighborhood Church, who's being sent, who's a part of this church, would you come forward and stand right in front here? Because our church would like to pray for you, and our elders would like to pray for you right now.